Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Graham and I'm the pastor of Families and Children. And uh, I love being a pastor and it's new to me. And one of the the things I get to enjoy is I now get to introduce myself as a pastor. When people ask, what do you do? Uh, I can say pastor. And you get all sorts of different reactions to that. So one I had recently, uh, the conversation we're chatting is, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor at at City Reach. And she said, oh, um, a friend of mine, her auntie, twice removed, has a brother and he goes to church. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I don't know what you want me to do with that, but good for her, you know? Um, so that's one reaction you get. And another one, which is far more common, uh, is when they ask you, what do you do? And you say a pastor, uh, it's almost as if you've just announced that you have leprosy because it kills the conversation. They're like, oh, okay, and that's it. And then suddenly they stop talking to you. But uh, one of the best answers I ever saw or witnessed was um, in Hong Kong. So the senior pastor of the church there was a guy by the name of Tobin. And Tobin and I were invited to a banquet, a charity banquet. And it was all the high flyers, the hot shots, powerful, influential people that were there. And we were sitting at this banquet table and Tobin was, was talking to one guy who was obviously quite high up in whatever he did. And uh, so he asks Tobin, and, and what do you do? And Tobin said, I work for the most powerful person in the world. And this guy was a little bit suspicious. So he looked at me and I said, I know him and he really does work for the most powerful person in the world. And uh, this guy, his face lit up. He thought he'd hit the jackpot. Yeah, I've come to this charity dinner to network and, and I end up sitting next to the guy who works for the most powerful person in the world. And then he says, no, no, but really, like, what, what, so what do you do? And he goes, uh, well, I work for Jesus and I'm a pastor. And this guy, his face just dropped. It was like the blood drained from it. He was just, he wasn't impressed with that answer. And very quickly, he turned away and started speaking to the person on the opposite side of him. But the truth is, Tobin did work for the most powerful person in the world. And the truth is that you and I work for the most powerful person in the world. But the world doesn't often have time for that. And I often wonder why. So what do you think of when you hear the word power or you think of power? powerful people? Do you think of people who have incredible influence? They are a powerful person. Or do you think of someone who has the power to tell you what to do? Or maybe a little bit like me, it's a little bit of a scary thing, right? Like, wow, they're powerful. Like, don't mess with them. And what we're going to see here is is that I think people are naturally a little bit suspicious of power because we've seen throughout history, we see it in our modern culture, such an abuse of power that we're a little bit suspicious of it. But today, as we dive into the scripture, what we're gonna see, we're gonna get an insight into Paul's 
prayer life. And he builds to the point where he really wants us to get to grips with God's power. And God's power is not what we think it is. But for lack of a better word, it's more powerful than what we think it is. So Paul begins. This is what he says, verse 15. He says, for this reason. What reason? Well, for the reason the previous verses all said what Pastor Timon preached last week. The reason that you are blessed. The reason that you are chosen. The reason that you are holy and blameless. You are adopted. You have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. For that reason, Paul says this, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So how's this little community of believers in Ephesus doing? Paul had spent about two years in Ephesus, and now he's hearing this report of how they're doing. And he hears two things about them, which he is so thankful for. One, that they have faith in Jesus, and two, they have this love towards the saints. Now, to have faith in Jesus means that these people had chosen to put all their trust in Jesus. They had chosen to follow him. The culture, the powers, the rulers around them, they were not worthy compared to following Jesus. They had put their allegiance with Jesus. They had loyalty to him and him alone. And they were saying that he is truly Lord. Our faith is in him. And because that was true, and because they did that well, and they believed that well, it changed how they related to one another. And that they had this love towards the saints. Now, what that doesn't mean is that they had nice, warm, fuzzy feelings about each other. So you can breathe a sigh of relief. You don't have to have warm, fuzzy feelings about everyone in this building. Because love, in the biblical sense, is not one primarily of emotion. It's one of action and care. This group of believers were doing something for each other. They were acting in love towards one another. And if you look at our modern culture, they kind of look at it as love is something you feel. And when you feel something, you can fall in love and you can fall out of love. And this just seems to happen all the time, right? And pop songs, this is their bread and butter. This is what they write about, this feeling of love. Now, that's a little bit of a problem when you're married and you kind of fall in and out of love, right? And it just doesn't seem to be a big deal anymore. But that's not how Scripture looks at the word love. Love, in a scriptural sense, is to act for the well-being of another person ahead of your own well-being, to consider others more important than yourself, to do something about a need, a person, to offer care. And this was a key mark of 
believers at that time. And it should be a key mark of believers today because Jesus said, he goes, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. This would be a key mark of a disciple. Now, Paul says this, he, he begins to pray and he says, because of your faith, your allegiance to Jesus, and because of your love towards everyone else, I keep asking for more. Now, this really, really challenged me as I was preparing this this week, because I tend to view prayer as kind of a crisis management or a disaster management, right? It's something I turn to when things are not going so well, right? Or something bad happens, you know? So-and-so's sick, so okay, let's pray. Or so-and-so's looking for a job, uh, let's pray. That's kind of my default. But that's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is that prayer is the fuel to a fire that is already burning. It is because they are doing well, it is because they love each other that he says, I will keep on praying for you. I'm not gonna cease, I will keep on praying for you. So here's the challenge for us. When someone is doing great, they need our prayers. When someone is not doing so great, they need our prayers. So the point is, pray. That's what Paul's saying, right? So whether it's you look at someone's life or you look at the church and you go, there is a fire that's raging, pray. If there is a fire that's going out, pray. And that's what Paul says. Okay, what he's now looking at, he says, you guys, you're doing well, right? You are growing, but I don't want you to stop there. I want you to continue to grow and mature, and this is what he begins to pray for for them. And I think this should challenge us as we gather in our real life groups. One thing that we aim to do is share life together. And by that means we should be praying for one another. So how does Paul pray? Let's look together. Verse 17. Yeah, let's just listen to the word of God. I like that one, right? Okay, verse 17. It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, what I want you to notice here is that Paul doesn't pray for a specific circumstance for them, right? I pray for specific circumstances. What Paul prays here is he says that in that circumstance, whatever they are facing, they would have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, the NIV version says that you may know him better. And that's what it means, that you may know him better. So whatever circumstance you are facing, it is then seen, Paul wants to pray that they would see it as an opportunity to grow closer to Jesus. So that whatever circumstances it is, it is a new quality of insight into who Jesus is. So Paul doesn't pray that, you know, someone will become 
well again or that they would find a job. What he does pray is that in that experience of being sick or in that experience of looking for a job, God's presence would enlighten something about who Jesus is for you. Now, with me, I tend, when something kind of not goes so well, I tend to kind of think, Jesus, where are you? Like, have you abandoned me or something, right? Like, that little bit of the doubt creeps in. And what Paul is saying here, it's the exact opposite. Actually, it's the fact that God is with you and he wants you to understand a new level of his grace that you've never had the opportunity to understand before. Uh, now, for me, uh, a few years ago, I was in probably the busiest season I've ever been in my life, right? With church, with work, and family. It was just a lot of stuff. There was to-do lists, and things were going well. And I hurt my leg playing sport. And uh, it just never, ever got better. I went to see physios. They couldn't help me, and it was, it was painful and sore. And eventually, after a few months, I ended up in the doctor's room, and he said, you need an ultrasound. So I had an ultrasound. The only last time I'd been to an ultrasound was when my wife was pregnant, and I wasn't pregnant, but there I was, lying on this bed, having an ultrasound. And all I could see was the doctor's face looking at the TV screen, uh, and he was like putting that horrible cold gel on your leg and like probing my leg. And all I could see was his face. And it was like, he just would like contort and like, and like, like oh my goodness, that's not good. <laughs> that, that can't be good. And he doesn't say anything. I just have this look on his face. And he looks at me and he says, I need to call your doctor. So what it turns out is that I had something called deep vein thrombosis, which literally means I had blood clots all the way down my leg. Now in doctor's, uh, he, they was completely factual, a void of motion. He says, what this means is that you could die at any moment. Thank you, that's very encouraging. Uh, but literally, he said, the danger is that uh, one of those blood clots could break away from the vein wall, travel to your heart or your brain, and you will die. So from that, literally moved me to a wheelchair and into hospital emissions. And there I am, lying in a hospital bed, and I'm feeling very sorry for myself. And I'm thinking to myself, God, I've got all this stuff to do. God, I'm so important. And in that moment, God taught me things that I will never forget. One, he taught me, you are not so important as you think you are. And two, I had this, this moment, this revelation that my life is in the Lord's hands. That at any moment he could choose to take me. That I was not in control of that. Now that might sound like a fearful thing, but it wasn't. For me, it was this moment of absolute peace and joy. It's like actually, my life is in the Lord's hands. And my leg will always be dodgy. Right? And that's okay. Because I think every time I look at it, it kind of reminds me of that lesson he was teaching me 
through that moment. So whatever your circumstance it is and a life will throw at you, it's an opportunity to lean into Jesus and trust him in new ways and ask him to show you who he is. Let it be a moment of growth and not despair. And then Paul says, I'm gonna pray three things for you and these are things I want you to know. If you look at the key thing, it says, I want you to know this. It's verse 18 through to 20. If you'd like to read along, you can, otherwise just listen. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Three things he wants them to know. He wants them to know the hope they have. He wants them to know about their inheritance and he wants them to know about power. Now we talk about our series in Ephesians that we're approaching it with hit. Well, this is hip, right? Hope, inheritance, and power. Hip. So hope. Now, hope in the English language, I think must be one of the most butchered words that there is. Because when we use hope, we kind of use it as wishful thinking. As in, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. We can't be sure, but I kind of wish it doesn't rain. Now, in a biblical sense, that's not hope at all. Hope, in a biblical sense, is to be sure, to be certain of what is coming. The Bible talks about hope being an anchor. It is something that firms you, holds you down. And really, what that means is when we take on a posture of hope in our lives, it means that whatever your present circumstances that are, they don't get to determine the meaning of your life, whether it's good or bad. Because we always look at our circumstances through the future lens of hope. Because the meaning of my life, the hope that I have, is found in the life, the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the hope that I have and that determines the meaning of my life, not my circumstances. That's where my hope lies. And Paul says this, I want you to know of the glorious inheritance that you have in the saints. Now I want you to imagine with me that you have an incredibly wealthy relative that you didn't know about. Wouldn't that be nice? And they have left you a massive fortune. And you're going to get it real soon. Let's just say in five years from now, you are going to inherit this massive fortune. How does the knowledge of that change how you think and approach life now? So one, I think it would change the fact that you know you have this incredible future waiting for you, and that you probably are able to endure whatever you go through with a sense of joy because you know what is coming. And I also think the biggest thing is that 
it frees you of fear and of the stuff that we so hold on to. It doesn't really matter. It probably causes you to be a little bit more generous with the stuff that you have because we know what is coming. Now, Paul is actually referring to scriptures in the Old Testament. So the Jewish readers would have read this and they would have known exactly what he was referring to. And he's taking them back to Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 and 2. Just listen to this. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. Okay, now listen to this. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So you have these Israelites, ancient Israel, who's a bunch of slaves. They have no hope, no future, nothing to their name. The Lord comes along and he says, I choose you. I love you because I love you. And I'm gonna take you out of the land of slavery and I'm gonna give you an inheritance. I'm gonna give you a land. And it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey, and, and it's going to be a fertile land. You're going to be able to grow stuff and have crops and feed your children and have a future. Now, to someone who's a slave in Egypt, and they hear the fact that they are going to get a good land, that is awesome news. But then when you look, he says to the priests, he says, but you guys, you're not going to get a little piece of dirt of your own. You Get the Lord as your inheritance. That's far better than any little piece of dirt that you have because the Lord will be your provider. The Lord will care for you. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying when we get him as our inheritance, we get the fullness of his kingdom. We get to inherit a kingdom that has no sickness, no sin, no death. That's awesome. Guys, I, I know this is church, but we are allowed to get a little bit excited about that. That is awesome, right? So that is what Paul's saying here. That is far more powerful and far more real than if I had said to you, at the end of service today, as you go out, please collect your check for $10 million. It is far more powerful than that. We are allowed to say amen. amen. That is good. Paul wants to remind us of that. But he's really building to this third point. He says, this is the thing I really want you guys to get. I want you to know this. I want you to know God's power. Let's read it again. Verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, I can remember a time that power was all the rage in the church, right? There were conferences on power. There were books on power. There were sermons on power. And I don't know whether it was just the way it was presented or the hype of it or just the way my brain works, but I kind of visualize this as the church can have this like Star Wars-like power, you know? Like the force can be with us and we can do all these cool things. 
But that's not what Paul is saying here. That's not the power he's talking about. So I want to tell you a story about a very powerful man, a man that Paul would say, this man has resurrection power. And it was a man by the name of Gordon Wilson. He owned a drapery shop. He loved Jesus and he went to church. On the 8th of November, 1987, Gordon and his 20-year-old daughter, Marie, who was a nurse, went to a Remembrance Day parade in a little town called Eskelin in Ireland. And while they were enjoying and watching the parade, a bomb that was planted by the IRA went off and it caused a whole lot of buildings to collapse. And they collapsed on Gordon and his daughter, Marie. And under the rubble, they were close enough to hold hands. And Gordon came around and he said to his daughter, Marie, Marie, are you all right? And she said, yes, daddy, I'm fine. How are you? And he said, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then he would hear her scream. He said, Marie, are you all right? And she goes, yes, daddy, I'm fine. How are you? And she would scream again. And this happened a few more times. And then Gordon asked her again, Marie, how are you? Are you all right? And she said this. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. And that was the last thing she ever said. Five minutes later, the rescuers came. They pulled both of them from the rubble. But Marie never regained consciousness, and she died in hospital later that same day, along with 11 other people who died that day. And the public was so angered, they were so enraged by what had happened, that the senseless killing had happened on a day like a remembrance day, that someone like Marie, who was a nurse, had given her life to caring for other people. She was so young, would die in this. And there was all this talk of revenge. And people who had never spoken about taking up weapons were suddenly talking about taking up weapons. But the next day, the BBC interviewed Gordon. And this is what he said. He's recounting the last moments with his daughter. And this is what he said. She held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me, and those were the last words I ever heard her say. And then Gordon would astonish everyone when he said this, but, but I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She was a pet. She's dead. She's in heaven and we shall meet again. But I will pray for those men tonight and every night. 
And a historian at the time said this, his name was Jonathan Barden. Jonathan Barden said, no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful impact. Later, history would look back and say, that was the turning point in the troubles of Ireland. That moment, that interview with Gordon Wilson was the turning point, and that's the resurrection power Paul is talking about. The power to take something that was meant for death, for harm and destruction, and turn it into life, victory, and peace. That is the resurrection power he's talking about. And you look at the life of Jesus, how did it end up for Jesus, right? He ended up as a corpse in a grave. Now, most times a corpse in a grave, that's the end of all hope, that's the end of all dreams, but not with the power of God. The power of God took Jesus, allowed him to take the hit, all the sinfulness, all the selfishness, all the screwed up things that we do, put it on him and ultimately put death on him. But he raised him to life. What was meant for death and destruction, God raised him to life. That is the resurrection power of Jesus, which is available to you. And what Paul talks about, he says, now Christ is raised as the head, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Now, in this age, God made the world good, but the world is compromised by sin. So now we live in this age often called the age of sin and death. And then we have this age to come where there is no sin, there is no death, there is no sickness. And in Jesus, the age to come came crashing in to the present age. Because he is the only human being who walked a perfect life, who didn't give in to the impulses that we give into. See, God has the power to reverse death moments and turn them into life and mercy. And he wants us to know, he wanted the Ephesians to know that this power is available to you. The power to take the most horrible, sinful, selfish human being and turn them into something that looks like him. So I don't know what the little death areas of your life are. Those areas of your life where are slowly destroying you, are holding you back, are causing hurt to yourself and to others. But Paul is saying that those moments, those death moments, through the resurrection power, God is able to take those death moments and turn them into something beautiful. If we respond to him. You see, the thing is, Jesus didn't just rise to life again from the grave. He was dead, he rose to life, and then 
It says he just kept on going, raised up and up and up. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. All in all. God raised Jesus up and up and up and up. And now he is above all. He is the head of everything. All power, all rule, all dominion. He is above all. And everybody now has to look up to Jesus. Your boss, every world leader, looks up to Jesus. When Jesus walked this earth, he was despised and rejected and mocked. What? A carpenter from Nazareth, the savior of the world? To the very point, he was rejected by men and he got to the cross where he was naked and he was mocked and he was laughed at. But God says, no, that was not the end of it because the power of God raised him up to life and now has him seated in heavenly places. He is the head of all things. But Paul doesn't stop there. He also then thinks of his feet. Christ is the head. Well, what about his feet? His feet is above his enemies. His power has now destroyed sin and death. You know, in in Egypt, they did an archaeological dig, and they found a footstool of one of the pharaohs. And on the footstool was engraved all the names of the enemies he had destroyed. So whenever he put his feet up at night, And he put his feet on that footstool. He would be reminded, I have destroyed these enemies. And Jesus wants his church to know he has destroyed the enemy of sin and death. All names. He is above all things. He's next to the Father. But now what about his body, right? He talks about the head, the head and the feet. What about the body? Now, he says this amazing thing. He says, you, the church, are his body. Now, if we are the body, that means we too are above his feet and we too can be more than conquerors because of him. Because he defeated sin and death, the church is able to be on top of its enemies. And Paul says this this picture, right? He comes up with a statement where he says, the church fills Christ. The church actually completes Christ in a way. Now, before you get like any big-headed and misunderstand that statement, Paul quickly corrects it, right? Before we think of ourselves as pretty important, he says, but don't stop there, right? Don't stop there. Keep reading. Because it is Christ who fills all in all. It is Christ who completes everyone and everything. The church will do very well not to forget that. When I was a a kid, I used to visit my grandmother, and she had this uh, binoculars, right? The old, heavy, black kind, right? It's huge. I don't know. They used to weigh a ton in those days. And uh, I remember going to her house, and I'd pick up these binoculars, and the first time I looked through them, 
It was amazing, right? Something that was far away suddenly comes into view, right? And you're seeing, wow, that's what it's really like. And that's amazing. And you begin to see all these details. And then I did something which I probably all kids do. I turned the binoculars around and looked through them the wrong way. And what happens when you do that? Everything becomes very, very small. And what Paul is wanting to tell the Ephesians, do not have a small view of God. Turn the binoculars around. Magnify the Lord. Get a big picture of who he is. We can have a small view of God when we look at our circumstances or our sickness and we say, this is too much for me. A big view of God says, I need this wisdom, a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him more through this experience. A small view says, I have no hope, I have no future. A big view of God says, the Lord has promised me a glorious future. He is my inheritance. A small view says, you do not know who I am. I cannot change. A big view of God says his surpassing greatness of his power is available to me. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in heavenly places, that power is available to me. And Paul's heart is for his church to see Christ, to see him in his brilliance and his magnificence. But not just to see him, but to partake in who he is. So we're going to worship the Lord now. And I would ask the musicians to please come out. But as we worship, I want us to get a, a magnified view of the Lord. And as we sing, we declare of what he's done and who he is. But let's not forget what he is still doing in our lives. Let's praise him for what he is yet to do. And as we declare who he is, may that be a truth for us as we go out in this week, knowing that his power and his grace is all sufficient for us.